Do you love to read but struggle to see print? Bookshare is a nonprofit ebook library that makes reading easier for people with low vision or blindness. Members can read in ways that work for them with ebooks in audio, large print, and digital braille. Get unlimited access to over 1 million titles, including New York Times bestsellers, periodicals, upskilling books, and more. Bookshare is free for New York Public Library patrons or U.S. students with a qualifying disability. For more information, visit bookshare.org today. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Tom Tobin, and for those that you don't know me, I am the president of ACB Diabetics in Action and your facilitator tonight. Our host tonight is Allison Smitherman. Uh, welcome, Allison. Thank you for being part of our uh, community calls tonight and always we really appreciate you doing what you do um Thank you. glad to be here yeah and i think danette asked everyone to uh mute so everybody remain muted that would be great so that abby doesn't have any deal with it, any background noise and all that good stuff um and uh, we will at the right appropriate time we will take hands for people to uh ask questions so um i would have to say looking at uh, abby's credentials and um her resume and all the things that we received about her background. I think we're in for a real treat tonight, guys. Um, how many people do we have in the audience? We, can, can you tell me that, guys? At 26. 26 and climbing, mm -hmm. hopefully. So I think you're all in for a real treat tonight. Um, so Abby, Abby Chesterson is the uh, director of the Diabetes uh, Education Center at the Pennsylvania Hospital, which is part of the Wharton University, I believe. My 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 father Abby went to the Wharton School of Business, so he was uh, he's long gone, but he went there for his M MBA back in the day. That's awesome. Um, so anyway, uh, Abby is a dietitian, and sh she also is a certified diabetes care and education spe specialist. So she has, as I said earlier, uh, some tremendous credentials tonight. Um, as you read in the announcement, she will be talking about um, long term. Uh, complications of living with diabetes and how it affects uh, all parts of our body from our organs to our nervous system um, as we all know that we live with this it's it can be uh, it can be a challenging thing to deal with so Abby we are so delighted to have you with us tonight and um, without further ado I'm going to turn the floor over to you thanks for being here awesome thanks so much Tom all right, so today we're going to talk about um, preventing the long-term complications of diabetes. Um, so we're like, like Tom said, we're going to be talking about kind of all of the different parts of your body that can be affected by high blood sugars. Um, so the chronic complications that we're going to talk through, um, we're going to use some different kind of medical terms. So I'll just make sure you guys are familiar with kind of what we're talking about when we use those. Um, so chronic complications of diabetes can include things that we might call cardiovascular disease. Um, so that's going to be heart and blood vessel damage related to high blood sugar. Um, the term neuropathy is going to refer to nerve problems. We'll talk about retinopathy, which is eye disease related to diabetes. Nephropathy, that's N-E-P-H-R-O-P-A-T-H-Y, nephropathy, is going to be kidney damage. And then we'll touch on some dental and gum problems like oral health issues 
um, some skin complications, and then two other um, just quicker points um, related to sleep apnea and um, depression and diabetes distress. So we'll talk a little bit about those as well. Um, the biggest thing that I want you guys to remember is that our lifestyle for reducing the risks centers a lot around um, choices that we tend to make day to day. Um, the biggest thing is having diabetes, simply having the diagnosis of diabetes doesn't necessarily mean that these um, complications will happen. Um, the complications are much more tied to duration of diabetes diagnosis. So the longer someone has had diabetes, the greater the chance that they will develop complications, but also the significance at any point of their hyperglycemia or their high blood sugar. So someone who has had diabetes longer and someone who has had significant high blood sugars um, are at an increased risk for um, these complications. So some of the big keys that we'll talk about in terms of reducing the risk for complications is going to be blood sugar monitoring. So that's checking your blood sugars and that pattern is different for everyone. Some people might check once a day. Some people may be checking four or five, six times a day, whether it's with a traditional glucometer where you're poking your finger or a glucose sensor where you're getting um, readings more um, consistently throughout the day. Um, blood sugar monitoring is going to be really helpful for us to see where your trends are. Um, healthy eating obviously makes a big difference as well, because that has a big impact on what your blood sugar is doing throughout the day. Um, promoting healthy weight as much as we can. Um, and that's different for every person. So every single person with diabetes is probably going to have a different realistic weight goal. Um, but we do know that a promotion of a healthy weight for each individual can be helpful as well. Physical activity is going to look different for everyone as well. Um, depending on what complications someone may have, they may actually need to adjust the, what their physical activity can be um, in order to keep their um, complications from uh, progressing or just to keep them safe in general. And then some other lifestyle changes that we would discuss um, in terms of reducing the risks would be smoking cessation. So individuals who are smoking, we do recommend working on quitting. Um, and for individuals who drink alcohol, we would recommend decreasing their alcohol intake as well. Um, the complications that we talk about very strongly with diabetes, so the eye disease, the kidney disease, nerve problems, um, we conducted, so there was a research study called the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial um, that was funded by the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. Um, so they studied individuals specifically with type 1 diabetes. And the initial study was a 10-year duration ending in 1993. Because these individuals had type 1 diabetes, that means that they were taking insulin injections to help manage their blood sugar. Um, at the end of the study, they assessed each individual's risk of developing eye disease, kidney disease, and nerve damage. And they found that there were significant reductions in these complications when individuals had better diabetes management. So through this trial, diabetic eye disease initial, so someone who did not have eye disease initially at the beginning, 76% um, of the individuals in the study did not develop um, diabetic eye disease through that study, that 10-year duration. Those individuals who did have eye disease initially, um, their progression was reduced by 54% through this diabetes management program. 
Kidney disease risk was reduced by 50% and diabetic nerve disease was reduced by 60% as well. So very strong um, indications that tell us that diabetes management with the targets that we'll touch on early, uh, later as well, significantly reduces the risk of these complications. And so that's why we impress upon individuals with diabetes, the benefits of good, excuse me, good management. Um, they conducted a follow-up study. So the epidemiology of diabetes complications or the EDICT study was conducted to follow up on the initial study participants. Um, and these results showed that there were long-term benefits of early and intensive blood sugar management. Um, so reducing the risk of heart, eye, kidney, nerve damage was found even over the next 15 years to 20 years or so. Um, they found that the diabetes management actually lengthened individuals' lifespan with diabetes. Um, and so, for example, advanced diabetic eye disease was reduced by about 50% after 18 years. Eye surgery was less, was 49% requ was required 49% less after 21 years. Um, advanced kidney disease was reduced by 33% after 24 years. Diabetic nerve disease was reduced by 30% after, after an additional 14 years. And cardiovascular disease measured by stroke and heart attack was reduced by 30% after an additional 22 years. So that early, that um, intensive management earlier in a diagnosis of diabetes can very much um, improve the the health of someone with diabetes long-term and make significant reductions in their uh, development of complications. And so that's what we're talking about here is at any time during your diabetes journey, making, um, taking steps that you can take in order to better manage your blood sugars can help with that long-term risk factor as well. Right. I'm sorry about that. I'm trying to get my thing to advance to the next student's so I'll just keep on going and see why it's not keeping up with me. All right, so the next thing that we're gonna talk about, um, we're gonna start by going through some of our um, different complications of diabetes. So we're gonna start off by talking about one that is very, very common for individuals with um, type two diabetes especially, but also really here we're talking about anyone with type one or type two diabetes. Again, the longer duration of diabetes, the greater the chance of these complications developing. So we're going to start off by talking about heart and blood vessel disease. Um, again, often considered or often called um, cardiovascular disease. So, oh, sorry. Hold on. My prompt cut out on me. So just give me one second here to, to get that started back up. Should have had it printed out so I could refer to it, but that's okay. It's okay, Abby, take your time. Sorry about that. Technology, you gotta love it when it works. I know. Right. Well, it's it tough too, because like I'm accessing it through through like my work like VPN basically. Uh, and so sometimes it times out and it does it more often now than it used to. So it's just kind of frustrating. Blame it on COVID. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's see. I've got, I think I've got it back up here. If not, I have it working on my screen, so we'll keep going. Um, okay, so cardiovascular disease, interestingly enough, is the number one cause of death in people living with diabetes. Um, about two in three individuals with type 2 diabetes, um, when 
they look at the death certificates or the cause of death for individuals with diabetes. Two in three of those individuals um, have passed away related to a cardiovascular issue. I'm just going to go ahead and stop sharing because I can't get it to update. So um, an individual with type two, or I should say an individual with diabetes in general is actually two times as likely to have heart disease compared to the general population without diabetes. Um, and I, I really impress upon that point because an individual with diabetes and that diagnosis alone has that two times higher risk. But interestingly enough, people with diabetes often also have high blood sugar, have high blood pressure and high cholesterol, which are also risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So adding all three of those together, individuals with diabetes tend to have quite significantly elevated risk for developing heart disease. So again, diabetes management, blood sugar management, is going to be one of the most important things that we can focus on. So the, the background of cardiovascular disease and how it relates to diabetes is that high blood sugar causes damage to the blood vessels and also to the nerves that control the heart and blood vessels. So without optimal blood flow and without those nerves that are really controlling how and when the heart is beating, we often have difficulty with the heart disease um, risk factor. There are a few different types of cardiovascular disease. Um, the first one that we'll touch on briefly here is called atherosclerosis. Um, and that's basically when the blood vessels stiffen and they narrow um, from plaque buildup. Um, so this buildup then decreases the ability for blood to flow to different tissues. Um, mainly here, we're talking about the heart, the brain, um, the legs, kind of that, that um, distant part from your heart, um, so down into your feet. We also can see more um, heart failure in people with diabetes as well. And heart failure is when muscles in the heart become weak. And so they aren't able to properly pump oxygenated blood out to the body tissues. Um, so the, the heart sometimes can't fill with blood appropriately, and then sometimes the heart can't pump as well with heart failure. Um, so that can be, again, more common for individuals with diabetes. I did mention already that people with diabetes tend to also have high blood pressure. And this is when the heart is having to work harder to deliver blood throughout the, the body. Um, so high blood pressure is also associated with some of the um, smaller blood vessel issues that we'll talk about a little bit later. So specifically related to the eye problems and the kidney problems as well. So individuals with diabetes and high blood pressure have higher risks for a few of these complications. And then the last one that we'll touch on is going to be stroke or heart attack. And this is when blood supply to part of the brain or part of the heart is suddenly interrupted for some reason. Um, the part of the brain or the heart right after that interruption um, can have damage, can have cell death, basically, um, because they don't have that oxygenated blood. Um, so I'm just going to touch a little bit more on high blood pressure, since that is something that affects so many people with diabetes. Um, and again, blood pressure is defined as the force of blood flow inside your blood vessels. Um, your blood pressure is measured in two different numbers. So there's a number on top and a number on bottom. Um, so your systolic blood pressure is what we call the top number. And that is the pressure 
as your heart beats and pushes blood through the blood vessels. So kind of that contraction of your heart is the systolic pressure. And then the diastolic blood pressure or the bottom number is the pressure when your heart and your blood vessels relax in between beats. So blood pressure is going to be measured by that full contraction and relaxation of your heart. This should be checked ideally at every doctor's office visit. Um, and our goal for people with diabetes um, and higher cardiovascular risks is to keep that blood pressure less than 130 over 80. And that's according to the American Diabetes Association. So a normal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80. But we understand for people with diabetes and high blood pressure, that can be a little bit harder to achieve. So that 130 over 80 becomes our goal. When we think of heart attack and stroke, um, again, remember that this is when the blood supply to the brain or the heart is interrupted. This can be caused by a blood clot. It can be caused by a ruptured artery, um, or it can be caused by that atherosclerosis or that, that narrowing of the blood vessels. People with diabetes are one and a half times more likely to have a heart attack or stroke than the general population. And we generally say that just having diabetes puts you at the same level risk as someone who has already had a heart attack or a stroke. So again, something that can be a very big risk factor. Um, acknowledging the signs of heart attack or stroke is very, very important because we want you to seek emergency care very quickly if this is something that you may be experiencing. Um, so heart attack symptoms commonly are, um, can be slightly different, I should say, between men and women. So men more commonly are going to have symptoms like sweating, pain in their chest, arms, neck, or jaw, shortness of breath, heartburn, indigestion, things like that. You may have heard, heard people say um, that they have like pain radiating down their arm. Those are very classic symptoms of a heart attack in men. In women, it can be a little bit more deceiving. So women may feel dizziness. They may feel discomfort, but on like the backside of themselves. So on in between their shoulder blades, um, shortness of breath, that indigestion or gas pain, and then unexplained fatigue or sleep changes. So it's important for us to understand how our body may um, present having a heart attack because it is different men versus women. If you ever feel as though you're experiencing these symptoms, the first thing that we would want you to do is either seek medical care yourself or have someone else take you to the nearest emergency room because seeking care and getting help is really going to be critical to making sure that there aren't um, damages after the fact as well. Stroke signs are slightly different, um, and a lot of times we use the acronym BFAST, so B-E-F-A-S-T, to talk about signs of stroke. So the B stands for balance. So individuals having a stroke tend to have a loss of balance. They may have a headache and dizziness. E is going to stand for eyes, so they may have a sudden loss of vision in one or both of their eyes or a significantly blurred vision. F represents the face. So oftentimes individuals who are having a stroke, it's almost as if you could draw a line right down their face. One side of their face is going to look normal and the other side of their face is often quite droopy. A is going to be for arm. A lot of times we'll have one-sided weakness on our body. So we may not be able to lift the arm. 
S stands for speech because oftentimes people will have um, slurred speech and not be able to form words appropriately. And then T stands for time because we want you to call 911 as soon as possible if you think someone is experiencing a stroke. Again, seeking medical care and getting the care that you need is very, very important in stroke situations to make sure that there isn't any or there is minimal, I should say, long-term damage. The biggest thing like we're going to talk about with all of these complications to prevent heart problems is going to be monitoring our blood sugar, checking our hemoglobin A1C. So most individuals with diabetes are going to have, according to the American Diabetes Association, goals for their blood sugars typically before meals and in the morning of about 80 to 130. An hour after starting a meal, our goal for your blood sugar is about 180 or less. And then about two hours after the start of the meal, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommends a blood sugar goal of less than 140. Now remember, work with your provider and your care team to figure out what your diabetes goals are going to be because these are individualized. We do recommend checking your hemoglobin A1C at least twice a year. Oftentimes, your provider may be checking it a little more often, maybe every three to four months. Blood pressure management is really important in prevention of heart problems. Again, with people with diabetes, our goal is going to be less than 130 over 80. Cholesterol management, which we'll touch on in just a second, is also very important. And then, as I mentioned earlier, if someone is a smoker, we do recommend smoking cessation. We talk a lot in terms of cardiovascular disease about what we call the ABCs of diabetes. So the A is gonna stand for your hemoglobin A1C. The American Diabetes Association recommends that this A1C come in around 7% or less. Whereas the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommends slightly lower at about 6.5 or less. But again, that is individualized taking into account all of someone's medical issues. The B is going to stand for blood pressure. And so again, American Diabetes Association states that most individuals with diabetes would benefit from a blood sugar, I'm sorry, a blood pressure of less than 130 over 80. And then when it comes to cholesterol, we're going to talk about four different labs that we look at for cholesterol management. One is going to be your total cholesterol. And our goal for that is less than 200. Triglycerides are another fat in our body that tends to hang out with high blood sugar. So if someone has a higher A1C, they often tend to have higher triglyceride levels. But our triglyceride goal is going to be less than 150. We're going to talk about the high-density lipoprotein, or the HDL. This is our good cholesterol, so we want this one to be high. Our goal for this one is over 40 for men and over 50 for women. And then lastly, for our cholesterol, we're going to talk about the low-density lipoprotein, or the LDL. This is our bad cholesterol, or our lousy cholesterol, and so we want to keep that one low. And that one we want to keep under 100 if we can. So those are going to be the things that your provider and your um, diabetes care team will be monitoring to make sure that we're helping reduce your risk of heart disease when it comes to having diabetes. So we're gonna shift gears and we're gonna talk a little bit about the nerve problems that can come from diabetes. And this is often called neuropathy. So the first type of neuropathy that we'll touch on is gonna be called peripheral neuropathy. And this is referring to neuropathy that happens in the distant parts of our body. So hands and feet here mostly. 
Peripheral neuropathy often feels like tingling, pain, um, numbness, weakness, kind of burning pain in your hands and or your feet. And this is the most common type of neuropathy in people with diabetes. It's often diagnosed very simply on a foot exam. And generally, this neuropathy starts in both feet at the same time. Um, in order to prevent the nerve problems from exceeding kind of that initial um, that initial issue, diabetes management and blood sugar control is going to be very important to prevent this from getting worse. Unfortunately, as it stands right now, we don't have a way of reversing this nerve damage, but there are plenty of medications that can help to treat the symptoms. Autonomic neuropathy is the other main form of neuropathy that we see. And autonomic neuropathy is going to affect the nerves in our body that control our body systems. So I often encourage people to think of like autonomic neuropathy as like those automatic nerves. So the ones that work without us even thinking about it. And I'm going to talk about a few of those that can be affected. So autonomic neuropathy can affect our bladder and we can actually have paralysis or decreased function of the bladder muscle itself. And that, unfortunately, can increase the likelihood of someone having urinary tract infections. We can also see changes to our sexual organs. Um, erectile dysfunction, vaginal dryness, or lack of arousal are very common in individuals with diabetes as well. The nerves that control our digestion can also be affected by this autonomic neuropathy. Um, so our bowel movements can go anywhere from constipation to diarrhea, which can make it very difficult to manage. And also the nerves in our stomach can be affected. And that's something called gastroparesis. Gastroparesis is when those nerves in the stomach aren't digesting um, the way that they should. And so oftentimes food can stay in the stomach longer than it would in a in the general population. Um, these individuals may have trouble digesting, so they may have more nausea, vomiting, things like that. We mentioned briefly with the heart disease issue that there can be changes to our heart and our blood vessels. So we may have dizziness when we're changing positions or something called orthostatic hypotension. We can have changes in sweating, um, which can happen. Sometimes people experience increased sweating while they're eating or at night. And then other individuals may not sweat at all when they, even when it's hot outside. Um, and then of course, too, we can also see changes to our vision related to the nerves that um, help our eyes to focus. So we can have difficulty changing to adjustments in lighting. There are a few different other types of neuropathies that we don't see extremely often. Um, there are some that are considered cranial neuropathies. And so this is going to affect um, the nerves that control our sight and our eye movements, um, hearing and taste. So sometimes people with diabetes actually can have a higher chance of having hearing difficulty as well um, because of those nerves that are in the, in the head. Um, we can also have focal neuropathies, which is basically when a group of nerves is affected. Um, and this can lead to things like double vision or Bell's palsy, um, pain in different parts of our body. Specifically, we can see it in the front of the thighs, very interestingly. Um, so lots of different types of neuropathies that we can have. And that's simply because we have nerves all over our body. So 
from our head to our toe, our nerves can be affected by those high blood sugars. But again, back to what we were saying earlier, blood sugar management is going to be one of the biggest things to help prevent these neuropathies from happening. We do recommend also being very careful with, um, especially with foot care. Um, so we'll touch on that in just a minute here because feet are a very risky part of our body when someone has diabetes. Um, we may see a podiatrist who is a foot doctor. Um, we do recommend that usually, at least annually for people with diabetes, because it can be more of a risk for us to have an issue with our feet. And then, of course, protecting our feet day to day at home is very important. Feeling is protection for our feet. So if we have changes in sensation in those feet and decreased feeling or just altered sensations, um, this is going to make us very risky for having a problem with our feet. We also often have that cardiovascular disease risk, um, or we may have some level of cardiovascular disease. And so the blood flow from our heart and our blood vessels all the way down into our feet can be uh, less than ideal as well. And so that makes it harder for us to fight an infection or heal if we do develop a foot problem. So we recommend seeking some help, getting someone to help check your feet, um, whether that's morning and evening or whenever maybe a health aide is there with you. We're looking for cuts, redness, swelling, sores, blisters, other damage to your skin that we may not feel again because the sensation can be altered. We recommend washing your feet daily with a mild soap, drying those feet well, especially in between those toes, because that's where it tends to stay more moist. And so that can increase our risk for these skin problems that we'll talk about a little bit later. You're going to feel for bumps. So you're going to feel for temperature change across your feet, feel in between your toes and feel your finger or your toenails, excuse me, to make sure that there aren't any jagged edges or there isn't anything stuck in between those toes. Um, if you need assistance with cutting your toenails, we do recommend um, making sure that whoever is helping with that is cutting your toenails straight across, helping to decrease the risk for ingrown toenails. A lot of times, too, your podiatrist would be able to help cut your toenails. You're going to check and feel for dry, cracked skin. Cracked skin is going to be an easy way that bacteria can get into your blood, and that can cause an infection. And again, people with diabetes have a harder time fighting those infections. And of course, reaching out to your provider if you're ever seeing anything different with your feet or feeling, I should say, anything different with your feet. For everybody in the room, we may say, well, what about pedicures? Everybody from time to time might like a little treatment there. But we want you to be very, very careful if you are going out for professional pedicures, bringing your own tools, your own polish, asking the salon about their cleaning and safety protocols, very important things because there are a lot of people's feet coming in and out of those places. And if you're using somebody else's polish or some polish that someone else recently used, you don't know if they had a toenail fungus or something that's now introduced into the polish. And then if you use it too, it's on your toes as well. So bringing your own tools and polish can help with that if that is something that you choose to do. We do also recommend requesting that they do not use a pumice stone or shave off your calluses because those things can abrade the skin too much and again can introduce an area for bacteria to get in and cause an infection. Socks and shoes are important when it comes to foot care. So making sure we're wearing clean socks, avoiding tight elastic that can 
um, cause an irritation for your skin. Making sure your shoes are fitting properly and making sure that you're always wearing some protection on your feet. So keep slippers next to your bed so that you're not walking around barefoot in your home. Breaking new shoes in slowly is also very important because the, the, the more aggressively you try to break in a shoe, the more likely you are to get blisters. And then again, those are difficult to heal. Um, shopping for shoes, interestingly enough, in the afternoon is what we recommend because our feet actually tend to swell later in the day. And so a shoe that we purchase in the morning isn't likely going to fit us the same way as a shoe that we purchase in the afternoon. And then when you're putting your shoes on, a good idea is to take your hand and just put your hand inside the shoe to make sure that there isn't anything in there um, or there isn't anything poking through um, the bottom of the sole that would potentially irritate your foot. As I mentioned, the podiatrist or the foot doctor is someone that we do recommend that you meet with at least once per year. These individuals are especially trained to assess and treat nerve damage. Um, they can help, as I mentioned, with trimming your toenails, removing corns or calluses. They can help treat dry, kind of hardened and cracked skin, especially on your heels. That happens for people with diabetes. Um, they can recommend footwear or orthotics. Um, some insurances, especially Medicare, I know do cover diabetic shoes for their, their um, clients. So that's something that you would be able to um, seek out with your podiatrist's help as well. Generally, the podiatrist or your primary care doctor, whomever is managing your diabetes, your diabetes foot care, um, should be conducting a monofilament test on your feet. That's where they take a very, very, very thin fiber or a monofilament. They're going to touch it to very specific areas on your feet to see if you feel that. So those areas are places like your big toe, your baby toe, the, the middle portion of your heel across the ball of your foot. So we're really trying to see if and where um, you're having any nerve-related problems. So the foot problems that we often see with diabetes are likely related to a neuropathy issue, um, but also the neuropathy can affect all of the nerves in our body all over in the different locations. Now, diabetes can also affect the eyes, um, but I want you to remember, too, with some of these eye problems as well, high blood pressure can also play a role here as well. So that's, a, that's something to remember with the kidney disease as well. Um, so cataracts can be more common in individuals with diabetes, generally two to five times more likely to have cataracts when someone has diabetes, and they're likely to develop at a younger age than the general population. Cataracts are a gradual, progressive thickening and clouding of the lens of the eye. Um, and some early signs can typically be gradual decrease in vision clarity at a distance. Um, but some individuals also complain of glaring in their vision during daytime or nighttime driving. Um, early detection, monitoring, surgical intervention as needed can reverse those vision changes specifically related to the cataracts. Um, in surgery, they typically are removing the lens that is clouded and putting a fresh lens in. Glaucoma is another eye-related disease with diabetes, um, and this is when pressure builds up within the eye. Um, so there's a, a natural drainage, basically, that happens or a flow of the, the fluid in the eye generally comes out the front, kind of drains down to the bottom of the eye. Um, but with glaucoma, there tends to be 
kind of a drainage canal block. Um, and so that pressure builds up in the eye, which can damage the retina um, and the nerves in the back of the eye over time. People with diabetes tend to have a two times higher risk of developing something called open angle glaucoma, which is when the nerve fibers, so again, we're talking about a nerve issue here, um, the nerve fibers in the um, optic nerve are lost. The hardest part with glaucoma is often that there aren't any symptoms very early on, um, and later symptoms can tend to be loss of peripheral or side vision, seeing blind spots, and of course, overall blindness as well. Um, if caught early, glaucoma can be treated with eye drops, laser treatment, surgery, um, and these things can be very effective at preventing um, additional um, progression of the, the glaucoma. Retinopathy is the probably the most discussed type of diabetes-related eye disease. Um, and so the retina is going to be the nerve tissue at the back of the eye that converts light into signals that our brain then interprets as vision um, or images, I should say. Um, so retinopathy is going to be considered disorders of that retina um, that tends to result from leaky blood vessels in the back of the eye and then growth of abnormal blood vessels in their place. Um, so basically, these tiny blood vessels in the back of the eye can be weakened and damaged by both high blood sugar and high blood pressure. There are two different types of retinopathy. The first is going to be considered non-proliferative retinopathy. And this means that the small blood vessels in the back of the eyes have started to kind of balloon a bit and form pouches. They've started to leak um, fluid and blood into the eye, which can increase swelling in the eye. So these blood vessels kind of get blocked. They can get closed off. Um, new blood vessels can grow in their place because we're still trying, our body is still trying to nourish the retina um, with that healthy blood. But in non-proliferative neuropathy, um, we're getting to start to see some of that ballooning and leaking and bleeding. When we get to retinopathy that's considered proliferative retinopathy, um, this is when some scar tissue has started to form in the back of the eye. Um, and this can cause the retina to start to pull away from the back of the eye itself. Um, so those new blood vessels end up becoming really, really weak. They start to bleed and leak more. Um, and so that then contributes to the development of this scar tissue uh, where the retina can detach. A type of retinopathy also um, can be considered something called macular edema. Um, and the macula is the part of the eye that's responsible for what we call central vision. So it's like the center part of the back of the eye. Um, and so macular edema is leakage of fluid from the blood vessels of the eye, specifically into the macula itself. Um, and so this often comes with the retinopathy that we were just referring to. Um, macular edema has a wide range of impact on vision from mild blurriness to legal blindness. Um, so macular edema, again, is something that early detection can be very helpful with. Generally, we recommend a dilated eye exam annually with an ophthalmologist for people with diabetes, even if they say that their vision is fine, because the diabetic eye disease often can have symptoms or can cannot have symptoms until it has progressed fairly far. So um, early detection, again, is very important. 
Different treatments are out there for um, these eye issues. So something called photocoagulation is the use of a laser where we can kind of um, cauterize those leaking and uh, bleeding blood vessels, um, stop the bleeding, prevent those new blood vessels from growing. And we can hopefully try to prevent some of that vision loss. Um, there's something called a varectomy, which is a surgery where we um, relieve pressure on the retina by removing some of the internal um, part of like the gel of the eye. Um, and then there are eye injections that we can use. Um, some of those help to prevent that new blood vessel um, system from growing in the eye. But then others are steroids as well that can help prevent that from getting any worse. Again, biggest thing to help prevent those eye problems would be blood sugar management, blood pressure management. Um, smoking cessation, again, if someone is a smoker. Um, there are studies that show that exercising, eating a balanced diet also help to reduce the risk of eye problems. Um, we teach people, too, about the warning signs of possible eye disease. Um, so this would be things like blurry vision, seeing spots or like holes out of your field of vision flashing lights, um, increasing floaters, poor night vision. The biggest thing I tell people too is looking out for these signs and symptoms, but remembering that they don't necessarily mean that there's anything more significant going on, but we do always want to make sure that we're following up with the eye doctor, um, the ophthalmologist specifically, so that they can do the additional testing needed to see if there is anything going on in the eye related to diet. So next, I'm going to talk briefly about diabetes. And, excuse excuse me. me. Yeah. This is Tom. Excuse me. Before you transition to the next thing, um, this has been incredibly informative, and I'm just riveted by everything you're talking about. But <laughs> I wondered if we could uh, – it's about a quarter of, uh, of nine. I wonder if we could um, stop you here and maybe offer some questions out there. Sure thing. Um, I – I, again, I've, I've got about 10,000 questions already, but I'll, I'll yield to the floor. But if you don't mind stopping right now, and we could open the floor for the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Certainly. For some questions. And if you would be gracious enough, maybe we could have you come back and, and finish this amazing presentation. Yeah, that's not a problem at all. Okay. And so, um, Allison, um, everybody's muted. So if you want to ask uh, Abby a question, why don't you raise your hand? And then, Allison, can you just... Uh, Take it from the top and walk us through who has some questions. And um, I, I sure. have to believe there are several out there. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Allison. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Yes, we do have some raised hands. And uh, I'll very quickly go over the uh, instructions for raising hands and unmuting uh, in case there's someone here who doesn't know how to do that. And so if you're on a PC and you'd like to raise your hand, you could do that with Alt-Y, mute or unmute with Alt-A on a Mac. You can raise or lower your hand with option Y, mute or unmute with command shift A. If you're on your smart device, the raise hand option is under the more button, which is in the lower right hand corner of your screen. Uh, the mute unmute button is in the lower left hand corner of your screen. If you're on a touch tone phone, you will raise or lower your hand with star nine, mute or unmute with star six. And we have at the moment, we have three raised hands. So uh, Danette, you can unmute. All righty. So this has been really, really, really good. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you will come back. Mike, what did you say the lousy, 
the bad i like to call that instead of lousy instead of bad i'll call it lousy the lousy was it 100 what did you say was good for them yeah so the goal for that one and right. and so the reason i kind of present it like the the ldl the lousy we want it lower i kind of think it helps kind of stick with our brain um and so the goal for that one is going to be less than 100 for most okay. people yeah. mm-hmm. some providers that i have worked with for individuals who have established heart disease sometimes their goal is less than 70. okay so the total of cholesterol needs to be under 200 which is your good cholesterol 40 your lousy cholesterol 100 and your and your triglycerides below 150. so it doesn't actually add up just that way for whatever Mm -hmm. reason Mm -hmm. um so they there's a vldl that falls into there too that we don't necessarily talk about as significantly mm-hmm. so the math doesn't quite work out perfectly that way okay. um but that's kind of the extent that we're getting to okay thank you yeah of course okay P- uh, pierre you can unmute yeah. uh, what did you say the the readings should be after two hours and after four hours sure So two different groups put out the recommendations for that. Um, So the American Diabetes Association, their recommendation is a little bit more ambiguous. Um, They usually, so the way theirs is truly written is one to two hours after the meal, they want you to be less than 180. Now, let me say that one hour and two hours after your meal, your blood sugar should be pretty, it could be, I should say, could be pretty different. So we generally say at my program, at one hour after your meal, you'd want to be under 180. At two hours after your meal, if we can be like 160 or less, that's pretty darn good. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists set slightly tighter goals. And so two hours after the meal, they want your blood sugar to be less than 140. So now what about what about after four hours so after four hours we're kind of getting back to that like 130 or less kind of that pre-meal blood sugar at that point um so i would kind of consider that before a meal so less than 130 at that point okay thanks of course okay next up we have a telephone number 626 ending in 106 if you could unmute and tell us who you are please and then go ahead with your com- a question. Yeah. yeah, hello. This is Charles. Um, I have a heel condition, um, and, and I think it's what you're describing with um, cracks in, in your heel and, and uh, some discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen a podiatrist. I've been treated um, mostly by my primary doctor who described a... Um, an ointment for it, but it really has persisted mm-hmm. for years. And I was wondering, should I insist on seeing a podiatrist? So that's kind of a, a, a tough situation, naturally. Um, so for some providers, some primary care providers, they feel very comfortable managing those conditions. Um, some insurances would require you to get a referral from your primary care doctor to see a specialist. Um, if your insurance does not require that referral, there is no harm in you seeing a podiatrist. 
What I heard you say was that it's persisted for many years. And so at this point, it might be something that maybe we should see a specialist who would maybe have a few more options that they would know about in terms of the treatment availability for you. Um, because especially like we mentioned with diabetes and dry cracked skin, we're at an increased risk for developing that infection. And unfortunately infection, then it can make your blood sugar higher. And so we're kind of then in this, this negative cycle. Um, so it couldn't hurt. That's for sure. Let me ask you a second question. If I may, um, I'm obese, but I have, have achieved good control in the past couple of years but have not been able to lose weight. So how critical is it to lose weight if you've been able to achieve some, some pretty good uh, control of diabetes? I mean, 6.4 and That's 80s awesome. to 100 in your blood sugar test. Yeah, so, so I kind of tell people that those two conditions, if you will, so obesity and diabetes, have a lot of linkages, but one does not determine the other one's status. So what I mean by that is carrying extra weight doesn't mean that your diabetes is, is not managed well. Um, and if your diabetes is reaching those target goals that we encourage people to reach with that 6.4 or so, that's great. Um, and that tells me that things are going well for your diabetes, even independent of the fact that maybe you do want to lose a little bit of weight or that's a goal that you have. Um, you know, I want to, but I can't. <laughs> right. And that's the hard part really for a lot of people because it's very difficult. Um, and especially depending on what medication someone takes for diabetes, sometimes weight loss is more difficult anyway. Um, you know, other barriers that come in to maybe physical activity or choosing healthy foods. There are lots of different factors that play a role with weight management, um, that, may have an impact on diabetes, but really we look at someone and we say, you know, as long as your numbers are looking good and balanced, then we're in a good place. Um, and of course, working with a dietitian, diabetes educator, that individual might be able to help you come up with some more concrete ideas that might help with some of that weight loss goal. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Okay, next up is Michael. You can unmute Michael. Great, uh, great presentation. Uh, but I got a question. Uh, do you recommend your diabetics uh, patients uh, to wear socks? It seems like a strange question because I hate to wear socks. Um, <laughs> I really, you know, I just don't like them because they're hot in the summertime yeah. in Mississippi. Yeah, I believe that. <laughs> So I don't think that it's critical by no means. Um, we would just want you to have some kind of protection on your feet. Um, and sometimes people feel like socks can make their shoes more comfortable, but like I didn't wear socks with my shoes today. So that's not something that's critical. Um, if we choose to wear socks, we want to make sure that they're socks that are going to wick away moisture, um, that aren't going to have any seams like against your toes and things like that. Um, but I don't think that socks are critical for someone. Thank you. That's all the raised hands for now. 
I think we that have- might be actually perfect timing, Abby. Uh, this has been a very compelling and powerful presentation. I want to thank you on behalf of ACB Diabetics in Action for just an amazing evening. I think all of us here, I counted 40 in the room, so yes. pretty good turnout for us, Abby. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope that you would consider coming back and finishing the presentation. Uh, you are a great presenter and a consummate yes. uh, with details and all that stuff. So we thank you very much for being here. Of course, um, let me know and we can always finish up the other complication. All mm-hmm. right, I will, I'll have Danette get in touch with you. But yeah, this uh, has been great. And she, she's on speed dial. Yep. All right, she's on speed <laughs> dial. So uh, I also wanted to t- send a moment to thank uh, Allison for being our host tonight. She does such a fabulous job and <laughs> always keeps our meetings running efficiently and smoothly. Uh, so, Allison, thank you so much for um, for being our host tonight, and thank all of you for being here tonight. And we had a really good turnout for Abby, which I was really happy to see. So, thanks for everyone's interest in our uh, second Wednesday community call. Um, I want to say thank you to Larry for for streaming. Yes. I'll always thank Larry for streaming. Yeah. He's always got us <laughs> under control. But yeah, good point. But um, before we wrap here at eight or nine, I just wanted to say. Um, as of uh, the beginning of this meeting, for those of you that weren't here, Becky reported that ACB Diabetics in Action Sugar Warriors are at $4,102 oh. and a couple of nickels. Uh, we are in the lead over the Florida Hurricanes yes. by a cool $1,032 and some change. <laughs> so woohoo. And I want to <laughs> single out a couple of people that have done a great job. Uh, um, Roberta McCall has overtaken me as president as our number one fundraiser. And so Roberta, great work. You've really, you've really embraced the concept of grassroots fundraising. And we really appreciate that. But I also wanted the group to know that um, there are still four of us. Roberta's in the lead. Um, I'm the second largest fundraiser followed by Liz and Nancy Matula. So there's still four of us, ACB diabetics in action, sugar warriors who are in the top 10. So way to go, guys. Um, obviously, we still have a ways to go. Um, it's, uh, you know, we have to take this thing through the end of August. So we do have a little bit more time to go. But um, I really want to thank everybody who's contributed. This has really, truly been a grassroots fundraiser. But let's keep it up, guys. And uh, not that I'm competitive or anything. Um, I keep telling you guys that. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um so, um, and so thanks to, to Becky for keeping track of all this. Don't forget, um, you can order T-shirts on the website, acbda.org. You can order your T-shirt. Um, and our entire online membership tool is now working and up and running because we have our PayPal account up and running connected to our bank account, thanks to Becky and to Jeff Bishop and Randy Knapp. Um, and... Last but certainly not least, um, for those of you that are guests tonight and not members of ACB Diabetics in Action, we certainly invite you to join us. Uh, If you found this um, community call compelling, which I certainly hope you would because it sure was, um, if you need more information, you can reach out by sending an email to acbdaorg at gmail.com. That'll get to one of us and we will answer you. Um, But again, if you want to join, you can go to the website, acbdaorg da.org and um, you can fill out the membership form there, pay your dues of $10 and uh, you will become a member of ACB Divex in action. So anything else for the good of the cause, Danette, Becky, Larry. Um, this is Becky. Yeah. Go ahead, Becky. 
I, I would like to um, throw out some dates that are coming up um, mm -hmm. for people uh, the, to mark on their calendars. Um, we've got uh, chat on uh, casual chat on the 18th mm -hmm. at 5 Eastern. Um, mm -hmm. A big one that all members need to be aware of. We have our annual business meeting on Monday the 20th at 8 Eastern. Um, and then we will have another chat in June on Monday the 27th at 7.30 Eastern. Thank you, Becky. Thank that. Yeah. So, yeah, the business meeting in particular, guys, that's uh, mm -hmm. Monday, June 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern. So uh, we're going to be having elections and having uh, what we've all accomplished over this past year, which is nothing short of remarkable. So I invite mm -hmm. everyone to be there. Um, anything else? Danette, Larry, um, anybody I else have anything don't to say? I think so. No? All right. Well, Abby, again, thank you so, yeah. so, so much for being here tonight. Um, gosh, you just have such a, a full yeah. repertoire of information. We are definitely going to get you back. So Sounds great. I'm you let hoping me know. in July, is what I'm hoping. <laughs> well, July 13th, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and did a little birdie tell me, Abby, that you're a new mom? I am, yes. Congratulations. Yes. That's Congrats. awesome. Yeah, Thank terrific. You. So, well, listen, thanks again, everybody. Abby, thanks so much again to you. Terrific presentation. And we will all see you back next month.